Uh, we come back again to our class on suffering. And today, as you can tell by the screen, we are looking at doctrines for suffering so that we are better equipped to handle it when we do encounter it, which we will all inevitably face one day if we are Christians. Um, but as we begin, let's go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on us. Father, we come before you this morning asking for your grace, for your mercy. Help us as Christians to suffer as Christians, and may our faith be refined through the fires of trials that we undergo. Help us, Lord, in moments of pain, in moments of weakness, in moments of great suffering and agony, to entrust ourselves to you even as you, Jesus, set the model and example for us when you cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, my God, you know, this is too much. Let this cup pass from me. And when on the cross you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So help us, Lord, to look to you, Jesus, in our, our, our heartaches, in our sufferings, so that we might respond even in the likeness of our Savior Christ Jesus. And through it, Lord, may we, may we be purified. May we find our hope in Christ and the resurrection and in the new life to come. So help us through this class to be better equipped to understand our own suffering, to be able to endure it, and to give grace and help to others who are also suffering all around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come back to this class, uh, we remember for these past two weeks that we've been looking at suffering broadly, um, trying to understand the complexities of suffering, trying to combat an oversimplistic um, understanding of it. And then the week before, we tried to understand how different cultures all around us have dealt with suffering along with the different answers and remedies that they've tried to give for suffering. Uh, we ended that class just by concluding that they only provide half remedies, half truths for suffering and how to face it and how to deal with it. And we found, ending, that the most thorough and comprehensive answer to the cause of suffering and the solution for suffering is wrapped up, really, in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus provides the fullest solution, the fullest remedy for suffering. And, and so the Christian faith provides the most uh, full answer, the most comprehensive answer to all the sufferings that we go through, along with the right solutions for sufferings as we find it wrapped up in the cross of Christ. Uh, but as we ended again last week, we didn't really get much into the biblical perspective on suffering at all, and we were instead highlighting the differences between the Christian faith and between all the different cultures and um, religions that are all around us. So starting today, as you can tell, based on our outline, for weeks three and four, we're on week three. We're going to now begin looking at suffering from a biblical perspective. And specifically, we'll look at our own Christian faith, our Christian doctrines that help us to navigate and understand our own suffering. So as we enter today's class, we're looking at three crucial themes in the scriptures to help us navigate our suffering as Christians. And this will include the creation and fall, judgment and restoration, and the incarnation and atonement. And my hope is that in looking at these themes of Scripture that will be grounded, really, in fuller ways 
in the face of pain and loss. And again, this material that we're covering here is primarily drawn from Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And I'm going to say that every single week so that you know that as I walk through this, these ideas are not original to myself, um, but are being based in this book. Any, any questions before we begin today's class? Again, we're looking at these three doctrines here, primarily here this morning. As we dive into our material then, we look first at the importance of a biblical framework. We'll find that as you encounter people across the spectrum, people at work, your family, your friends, whoever it might be, you'll find that one of the main arguments against God, being a Christian, believing in the biblical God, is going to happen at the heart level. It's going to happen right here. And while some will object, object to the existence of God on a philosophical level, right, on an academic level, uh, in reality, these are by far and away the minority. They might claim that's the reason they're objecting, but more or less, the main reason people will object to God in our society is based on the visceral arguments from evil. We find that one theologian recounts the true story of a woman who was assaulted by a man that not only raped her, but then cut off her arms at the elbows, leaving her to die. But somehow she was able to crawl to the side of the road, and there she was miraculously rescued. She survived. But she now survives without her arms and with the horrors of the night that she went through, this, this extravagant horror. And our response to such an incident, especially if that were to happen to you or to someone you love deeply, it's going to evoke a deep emotion within you. If you're a human, it's going to cause a response, a gut reaction, before you ever start to think about it logically. You might say, you know, keep all of that logical reasoning to yourself because it makes absolutely no sense how God could ever allow this to happen, how he could ever justify this happening to me or to, to my loved one near me whatsoever. This is just wrong. You can feel that. So I don't care if God exists or not. I don't want to believe in a type of God who would allow such a thing to ever happen. This is, in a nutshell, the visceral argument against God from evil. And it is, again, the most common one that we will encounter in our society. Something terrible happened to me. There's no way God can justify it. Therefore, I will not believe in him. And so we, we understand that real evil, real evil that ex people experience day to day, makes God implausible and unreal to the heart. And those who experience real evils, we have to be patient. We have to be kind to them, especially with one another when we struggle in our faith. We must be careful not to trivialize the pains and sufferings that people have gone through and be patient with them even as God is with us. At the same time, it's important to note that while many have experienced unspeakable horrors, and you can go to the Holocaust, you can go to the Jews, um, and many 
biographies that have been written about how people lost their faith through that, please know at the same time, people who have experienced the same horrors have also found God in the immense suffering that they underwent. So just because someone experiences radical evil doesn't mean that they will automatically turn from God. And what the differences in response shows us is that our our reactions to evil, to great evil, while not conscious at first, have reasons. We react because our heart has reasons. It tells us what we truly believe about evil. It tells us what we believe about God. And it tells us what we believe about ourselves. So we don't simply respond to gut-wrenching evil. Because deep down within all of our hearts, we are telling ourselves something about it that we, that we believe. We are interpreting it in our particular way. As Blaise Pascal wrote here, at first, a thing pleases or shocks me without my knowing the reason. And yet it shocks me for that reason, which I only discover afterwards. The heart has its reasons, which reason does not know. And as he points out here, there is a moral assumption in the hearts of all that suffer. And that moral assumption either strengthens our faith or it weakens our faith in suffering. So these underlying assumptions of the heart explain why people react to great evil in different ways altogether. Some find God and some end up outright abandoning God altogether and they hate him with a very deep hatred. So it's good for us then this morning as we come to, again, examine suffering from a biblical framework, to look deeply within our own beliefs. What are the reasons we give ourselves for the suffering we undergo? Because when pain and suffering comes, it reveals at the deepest core of our being what we truly believe, what we truly believe about God and ourselves. And so our goal this morning, again, is to deepen ourselves in the doctrines of our faith so that our faith might be more real and be able to make sense of sufferings that we go through. And if it is steeped in the life-giving truth of God when we encounter the sufferings of life, we'll find life, we'll find hope, and we can find true peace. So again, there are three powerful themes of scripture that we want to focus on this morning to give our hearts reason for when we face suffering. We want our hearts to have reasons. So the first theme we'll cover then is the creation and fall. We're starting at the beginning, the creation and fall. In Genesis 1 and 2, which I think most of us know about, we find that humanity was placed in the world without suffering, without death, without the evils that we face today. These evils that we now encounter were completely foreign to Adam and Eve. They were not part of God's good original design. 
So this means that even the death of a loved one who goes peacefully, you know, at the age of 90 or 100 or whatever, that wasn't original to God's good design in the beginning. It is in this way, then, that we can sympathize. We can agree with those who sense the wrongness of death in any form whatsoever. There is an intuition, I think, in all of us, even your coworkers, your friends, your families who, who claim they don't believe in God, there's an intuition in all of us that death is wrong, it's abnormal, and this is right. Because when we go to the beginning, we realize death was not a part of God's good creation. The intuition that death is wrong and abnormal is correct, for we were not meant for mortality. We were not meant for the loss of a loved one or the triumph of darkness. So sometimes I think you'll, you'll hear at funerals, especially if you've been to many of those, you'll hear people trying to comfort those in mourning by telling them that, you know, death is a perfectly natural part of life. And, and, you know, the intentions of such a person, it's good. It's good. They're trying to bring comfort to them. But the reality is that this isn't true because we realize that in the beginning, death was not a normal part of life. And to tell a person that death is normal is to tell them to work against a profound human intuition that is inscribed on the heart of every man, every woman, and every child. And that intuition is that we were not meant to die. Genesis 3 confirms this reality, showing us the origin of the world's suffering and pain as Adam and Eve refused to let God be our Lord and our King. We turned from God in the beginning. And in losing our relationship with the source of life and peace, all of our relationships began to fall apart. Because we rejected his authority, everything about the world, including our our heart, our emotions, our bodies, our relationships to other people, our relationship to nature itself, all of that stopped working as it should. The fall of man in the garden means that the original good design of God is, is, is broken, deeply, deeply broken. And it was broken as Adam and Eve sinned against God in the beginning. This brokenness is also sensed in our work. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, now our work, which was originally supposed to be pleasant, fulfilling, lasting, now it's threatened by the thorns and thistles that that grew out of the ground. There were added pains and suffering to all the work that we would do as it's being constantly unraveled. Everything that we try to do is just falling to pieces. So where hard work would naturally lead to prosperity in the beginning, sometimes you can do hard work all your life today only to have an injustice or a disaster wipe it all away in the blink of an eye. And so the fall as Keller notes here, gives us a remarkably nuanced understanding of suffering. There are thorns and thistles that are constantly unraveling all of our efforts. Sometimes it's three steps forward, and then sometimes it's two to five steps backwards. 
So it's important for us to recognize the brokenness of our world and that it isn't divided evenly across the globe. Instead, the brokenness is unpredictable across the board. It's too far broken to divide it into even patterns. And sometimes we try to do that. But as Jesus himself said, the sun shines and the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. And so this means at least two things for us here this morning. First, it means that the idea, the idea that people who suffer more are always worse than people, than those who suffer less, is wrong, and vice versa. Those who suffer more are not necessarily better than those who suffer less. Instead, we recognize, as Job's friends eventually did, that not all suffering is a result of our own sin or our own paying of our sins. Sometimes it's the result of a very, very broken world that we live in. And then secondly, while we must never say that every particular instance of suffering can be attributed to a particular sin that we do, you know, trying to do cause and effect, this sin must be related to this suffering. We can't do that. While we can't do that, we can say that suffering and death in general, it's a natural consequence. It's a just judgment of God on our sin in the beginning. And this means significantly that we cannot protest that the human race deserves a better life from God. I say that again. This means we cannot protest that the human race deserves a better life from God. Instead, we understand that death and suffering are a result of the fall, and it is part of God's just judgment on humanity for our sins against him. This framework is a necessary starting point, and it is more necessary than ever before because we find more and more and more frequently that this view is nearly always rejected in our society. It is thrown out the window as fast as you possibly can. Because in our society today, we have a different world view and understanding of God and suffering. Last week, we covered that our society's framework is primarily secular. We covered that at great length. However, What I didn't cover is, is that it is also deistic in nature. We live in a deistic society. It is a secular deism. And these two go really well together. And by deism, what I'm talking about is the belief that God created the world for our benefit, and now it operates on its own without any involvement from God. And so deism in this sense and secularism fit really well together together, hand in hand. And it's the framework that our society works in. So in this understanding of deism, God exists, but he is far more distant and abstract. He's not someone that we can know. And so our main responsibility in life is not to worship, serve, and love this God, nor is it our responsibility to seek forgiveness when we fail to do this. We find that the idea that we exist for God's glory is instead replaced by the notion that God exists to nurture and sustain us. 
That's the framework we live in. So we no longer live, we no longer exist to serve God. God exists to serve us. He is a God fashioned in our own likeness, and he is designed to meet our every whim and need. So while people claim to be Christian in this country, what they mean more or less is that they are secular deists, which again means that God created the world for our benefit and kind of let things go. As sociologist Christian Smith points out from his research, it is this idea that has captured most young American adults. Most young American adults are practical deists, though many of them have never heard that term before. And again, by this, he means that they see a God whose primary job is to meet their needs, and otherwise he has no bearing on their life whatsoever. And so this outworking of this belief has at least two implications. One, it makes it incredibly difficult for such people to believe in a God when horrendous suffering happens to them. Evil is far more potent when we believe that God exists for us, and it absolutely confounds those who don't believe that we are sinners saved by sheer grace alone. Between the two, being a deist and an atheist, it is far easier to be an atheist. And it's no wonder when people undergo suffering while being deists that they immediately turn to being atheists. But second, we also find that it creates a sense of spiritual entitlement. This means that God owes everyone, it owes everyone but the most villainous people, a comfortable life. So there is this entitlement, this, this spiritual entitlement that people in our culture carry. And so when God doesn't do what they want or give them the comfort they think they deserve, they react negatively. It's in this unstated belief in our culture at large where our biblical framework with the creation and fall clashes against nominal Christianity and really deism that pervades our society at large. God exists for me, myself, and I. He exists to serve me. And in adopting such a view that we are constantly saturated in, we find this unstated belief which seeps into our own hearts that leads to bitter disillusionment. Because the reality is that life, as we know, is brutally difficult. It's brutal. And so when life goes wrong, which it will, this spiritual entitlement that we carry dooms everyone who ascribes to it. It dooms us with with confusion, with bitterness. Like, what is God doing? He's there for me, for my good, my benefit. I can't see how this is good at all. So as we step back for a moment and consider our culture's belief, really, that God owes us a good life, we need to see this statement as clearly unwarranted and, and ungrounded. And we see this as unwarranted by looking at the creation and fall of man. And we recognize that we don't deserve such a good life that our society assumes we do. 
And more than this, if it is true that an infinitely glorious God exists, why should the universe revolve around me? Why should it revolve around me and not him instead? And if we consider the biblical standards for the Christian faith, such as the Golden Rule, the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, and then we consider our record against God's standard, the real question and riddle of evil is not what we thought. The real puzzle is this. Why, in light of our behavior as a human race, does God allow so much happiness? Why doesn't he just condemn us right away? Why save any of us considering our track record with with God? I mean, that's the real question we should be asking. So the teaching of creation and fall that we've covered helps to mitigate and and really eliminate the self-pity, the self-pity that afflicts people with a deistic view of life. And it helps us be prepared and unsurprised when suffering comes to us. So this is the doctrine of the creation and fall, and it's a crucial starting point if we are to understand it from a biblical framework. But any, any questions or comments on this first point that we have to understand before going forward? And again, people won't say that, that point explicitly, but if you interact with them enough, Again, it does come back to that idea, God owes us a good life. God owes us. I mean, and we have to recognize that belief in most people and then lovingly encourage them to show that the true nature of humanity is not that. God does not owe us anything. Um, and if we don't have that as a starting point, it's, it's incredibly difficult to understand any suffering that we go through at all. All right, we'll, we'll continue on here. Moving on to our second point. Final judgment and renewal of the world is the second theme we'll look at. And this doctrine helps us immensely. There are many people in this world that maybe you've talked with who claim they cannot believe in a God who judges and punishes people. But if there is no judgment day, What about the vast amount of injustice that has been and will be perpetrated? If there is no judgment day, people fail to realize then that there are only two options that we have. We can lose hope that justice will be served to those who got away with it in the past, or we can immediately turn to vengeance here today. Those are the two options. Lose all hope or turn to vengeance now. So again, it means that all the atrocities that have occurred at the hands of tyranny and oppression in the past will never, ever be addressed. Or on the other hand, it means that we have to take up our weapons now and go hunt down the evildoers and bring justice into our hands. Because if there is no judgment day in the end, these, these are your two options. So the biblical doctrine of judgment day Far from being a gloom and doom doctrine, which I think sometimes we can be, actually it allows us as believers to live with hope, to live with grace. And how does it do it? Well, if we accept that there is a judgment day, we have hope and incentive to work for justice today. Because we know that no matter how little success we may have now, 
Justice will be established fully and perfectly by God in the end. All wrongs and moral evils will receive justice at the hand of God in the end. And so this then frees us from a vengeful attitude towards those who have wronged us and instead allows us to be gracious and to extend forgiveness. It allows us to live in peace knowing that we do have an avenger above. Not like the fallible superheroes of Marvel, okay, not that type of avenger, but the avenger, Jesus Christ, who will come and bring everything into perfect order at the end. He will execute perfect justice, even if we don't get it here today. Because of Judgment Day, then, we are also calibrated not to be overly passive or overly violent in our pursuit of truth and justice. Instead, we are reminded that we have neither the knowledge to know exactly what people deserve, nor the right to mete out the punishment on God's behalf. So we pursue justice then with, with humility, knowing that we ourselves are ultimately not God. We may not know all the facts. And at the end of the day, we pursue it with humility, recognizing that we ourselves are fallible sinners deserving of God's judgment. So the truth of the judgment day enables us to be gracious and kind. It allows us to extend forgiveness rather than take vengeance into our own hands. Because we know that one day God will execute justice perfectly on our behalf. It also allows us to give hope to victims of horrible atrocities. That those crimes that happened against them, God sees. He's not simply ignoring or turning a blind eye to what they've undergone. Even the woman that we started with at the beginning, even if that guy is never caught, she can be assured that God will bring justice upon her perpetrator. And so it is a word of immeasurable hope that when evils do happen to us, it's not as if God's just turning a blind eye to it. There will be justice, and that brings us What also brings comfort then is the renewal of the new earth, of the world. As one theologian writes again, at some point, let me put that up on the screen, at some point for all eternity there will be no more unmerited suffering. This present darkness, the age of evil, will eventually be remembered as a brief flicker at the beginning of human history. Every evil done by the wicked to the innocent will have been avenged, and every tear will have been wiped away. So it is this doctrine, the resurrection, the renewal of the world, that gives us also hope in great suffering. For in the resurrection of the body, not only, not only do we receive the comfort for life we, we lost, but a restoration of all of it completely. We not only get the bodies and lives we had, but the bodies and lives we wished for, but never received. We get a glorious, perfect, unimaginably rich life in a restored material world. And so it is in this way, the truths of the judgment, the truths of the renewal of the world, that help us even in the midst of our suffering. And it gives us hope. Any questions on the second point? Judgment and renewal.
we go then to our final point here. The doctrine of the incarnation and atonement. Peter Berger, a sociologist, understands that every culture provides a way to make sense of suffering for its members. And from his perspective, he sees that the Bible does this in two basic ways. The first way it does this is in the book of Job, where we find a, a very difficult truth about suffering. When Job calls on God to explain why he went through so much suffering and pain, he finds that God actually challenges him on whether or not he even has the right to ask that question. Who are you, Job, to ask me such a question as that? And then as we know, in a series of questions, God confronts Job with his own finitude, his own ability, inability to understand God, and, and so much more. Where were you in the beginning? Were you there, Job? And in the end, after all of this questioning, we find that, that Job cannot question God about his own suffering. We must instead submit to God's mysterious, divine will, even when we don't understand. And it's here that we find, really, I think, some common ground with Islam. If the Old Testament is all that we had, God's ways are high and above us, and so we must trust him no matter what we're going through. But this truth by itself, it's cold. It's very difficult to swallow for many. And so while many can accept this truth when it comes to their suffering, we find that this truth really comes across as cold and devoid of any real hope by itself. It almost seems to portray God as somewhat cold and indifferent to the pains and sufferings we're going through. Like he's allowing it just to stick it to Satan. And and, and so if all we had was the Old Testament painting our God this way, um, again, there's a lot of common ground then with Islam. But thankfully, this is not the last word on suffering. Because as Berger goes on to say, this unbearable tension of the problem, this unbearable tension brought about by the Old Testament is met with the essential Christian solution of the problem. And that Christian solution is the incarnate God is a God who suffers. Without this suffering, without the agony of the cross, the incarnation would not provide that solution of the problem of suffering to which we would contend it owes its immense potency. Quote on the screen. So while the book of Job is right to point out human unworthiness and a call for complete surrender to the sovereignty of God, if this is taken on its own, uh, this, this call is more, most likely more than the sufferer can bear. But then enters Jesus of the New Testament. And as he enters, he provides unimaginable comfort and hope for those who trust in God's sovereignty. Because God himself has come down into this dark and broken world filled with hurt and pain. He comes into the darkness, leaving his glorious throne above. And he does it to rescue us. He drinks the cup of suffering, and he drinks this cup not to justify himself, but to justify us. 
He bears the suffering, the death, the curse of sin that we have earned. And he takes all of that punishment that we deserve, all the wrath of God, which we deserve completely, so that one day, one day he will be able to return and end all evil without ending us. The New Testament teaches us that it was Jesus who as God came in the flesh. He suffered, he experienced weakness and pain, and as Hebrews 5, 7 tells us, he had a life filled with fervent cries and tears to God as he experienced suffering and pain. This Jesus that we worship knew what it meant to experience firsthand rejection, betrayal, poverty, and abuse. He knows what it means to experience disappointment and despair, torture, and even death. And because of this, he is able to empathize with all of our weaknesses, all of our suffering, for he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. On the cross, Jesus went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection and a pain that infinitely exceeds our own. Jesus would experience the greatest agony on the cross and the greatest loss of love that any person has ever before experienced as he separated from the infinite love of the Father that he known from eternity past. And so while it, it pains us to be separated from a loved one that we've maybe known for 10 to 90 years, Jesus would be separated from the one that he knew from eternity past for the first time ever. And it would be this separation that would be so terribly unbearable that Jesus would cry out on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it is in the incarnation, in the atonement of Christ, that we see ultimate strength exhibited. A God who is strong enough to voluntarily become weak and to plunge himself into vulnerability and darkness for us. And so it is this fact of Christianity that makes it unique among all other religions and all other cultures of the age. For no other religion has ever conceived of such a thing whatsoever. But while we are astounded and we glorify a God that would suffer for us, not everyone finds this truth amazing. Keller tells us about a Christian minister named John Dixon who once spoke on the wounds of God on a university campus in Sydney, Australia. During the question time, a Muslim man rose to explain how preposterous was the claim that the creator of the universe should be subject to the forces of his own creation, that he would have to eat, sleep, and go to the toilet, let alone die on a cross. Dixon said that his remarks were intelligent, they were cogent, they were civil, and the man went on to argue that it was illogical that God, the cause of all causes, could have pain inflicted on him by any lesser being. The minister felt he had no knockdown argument, no witty comeback. So he finally thanked the man for making the uniqueness of the Christian claim so clear. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds as precious. God has wounds. 
So as we come back to the, the book of Job, then part of the answer is that God knows what he's doing, so be humble and trust him. And while this is true, the New Testament provides far more encouragement in trusting this God. We don't merely submit to a God who may or may not love us, but in the New Testament, we submit to an infinitely wise God who loves us more than we could ever possibly think. We turned from God, but God did not leave us, nor did he forsake us. He didn't leave us in our sins. God pursued us by coming to earth in Jesus Christ and by subjecting himself to suffering and death. He didn't say simply, you know, shut up and listen to me, though he could have, but he came. He suffered, he bled, and he died for us. So it is this profound truth that provides our hearts what we so desperately need in suffering. Because while we may not understand the suffering we are going through, or why God is allowing certain pains to continue, we do know some of the reasons why it cannot be. It cannot be that he hates us. It cannot be that he is indifferent or cold to our pains. Because if our God is willing to come to earth, if he's willing to plunge himself into the depths of suffering for us, we can know with absolute certainty it is not because he hates us or he doesn't care about us. Instead, we know that a God who is willing to sacrifice his only beloved son for us loves us more than we could ever possibly imagine or think. And he is then worthy of our trust no matter what we're going through. We can trust him for he's there with us in the fires of suffering. And we can trust him that one day every tear will be wiped away completely as he promised. And that the pains and sufferings that we will all go through will be but a blip on the radar of all the eternity of glory that awaits us with Christ. So while some might say, this still doesn't tell me why God would allow suffering and evil to continue, it does tell us and does give us what we ultimately need to be sustained in suffering. For if God did not spare his own son, but willingly gave him up for us on that cruel cross, we can trust him and know that he is working towards our best interests at heart. For those of us who continue, and you will meet people all over, we ourselves meet a struggle with this. For those of us who struggle with the question continually, why is God allowing me to suffer these pains? It is helpful for us to remember, again, the child-parent relationship. I mean, think of children and, and their relationships to their parents. Based on my experience with a, a two-year-old, um, they can't understand most of the reasons why their parents allow or, or forbid what they ask of them. At least this is the case with, with my son, maybe not yours. But while they can't understand all of their parents' reasons, they are still capable of knowing of their parents' deep love and care for them. They can know that their parents want their best, even though they don't understand why they allow certain things to happen at times. And this is what they really need at the end of the day, at this age. They need to know that their parents love them, care about them, 
and they are to trust them and, and live securely with them. But the difference between God and man is infinitely greater, right? Between than the difference between a two-year-old and a 30-year-old. We should not be able to grasp all of God's purposes, but through the cross and the gospel of Christ, we can know his love and grace and trust him, even as we expect our children to trust their parents, even though they don't have all the reasons or the answers. So I don't think it's a mistake then that Jesus likens our entering of the kingdom of God as children. Like children, we must enter the kingdom of God trusting our king, our king Jesus, who laid down his life for us. We must rest secure in his love, in his care for us, even if we don't fully understand everything that takes place to us. As we have many, many, many children in this church, they provide us this opportunity to remember this essential truth as they are walking illustrations among us each and every day, and really here on Sundays for us. So as we close this morning, we do so with Anne Voskamp's book, 1,000 Gifts. And in this, she shares her journey to understand the senseless death of her sister, who was crushed by a truck at the age of two. In the end, she concludes that the primary issue is whether or not we trust God's character. Is he really loving? Is he really just? And near the end of the book, she concludes with this. God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips, how will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. So no matter what pain, no matter what suffering we may go through, we must remember, we must believe that God does indeed love us and to run into his embrace in the moments of pain and suffering, knowing that he is not indifferent to our pains, but has suffered the pains far more than we could ever possibly imagine or think. We must run to him. So let's go ahead and pray, asking that God would help us to do this. And then if you have any questions, let's, let's talk afterwards. Father, we come before you, asking that you would help our hearts to believe against unbelief, for in all of our hearts, we realize that there is still a level of unbelief that pervades our beings. And we demonstrate this unbelief when we sin, when we don't love others, when we don't trust you, when we believe you to be unkind and unjust. Lord, for all of us, we realize that this unbelief is in the core of our being still. And we ask that it would continually be eradicated. Help us to believe that you are truly good, that you truly love us, that you truly care. And when we doubt, may we again focus on the gospel, even as we do here this morning, and so worship Christ, the one who has suffered beyond anything we could ever possibly imagine or think, so that we 
might be justified and made righteous in your sight. Help us, Lord, to believe. Give us faith. Give us eyes to see. And as we see Jesus again, even here this morning, may we behold him and be transformed into his likeness. For us, Lord, who are suffering, for us who may have questions or doubts, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work, work to instill faith and comfort. Give hope to those who are hopeless and help them to fight against despair. Help us, Lord, to be aware of the sufferings of others around us and to be Jesus to them, even as you, Jesus, served us and loved us and were patient and kind with us. May this church be a hospital for the sick and the needy, for the broken and the hurting. And may we, Lord, offer the hope of the crucified and risen Christ. May we live as resurrected people. And we pray this in Jesus' name.